This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. We selected this story for the podcast several months ago, not realizing or expecting what the state of the world would be upon release. Because of that, I've struggled to figure out exactly how to frame it here in the introduction. If I'm honest, it feels complicated to me to comment on world events from the safety of a podcast without firsthand knowledge of what's happening or a fuller understanding of the history leading up to this moment or fluency in the myriad forces at play. In this week's story, teller Laura Krugoff shares her experience of a similarly complicated moment as she experiences a profound historical event firsthand, yet still kept at arm's length by the relative safety of tourism. What does it mean to be both a part of something, but also never quite be within it? Recorded live at Webster's Wine Bar in February 2013, Second Story is proud to present Y2K. December 1999. I don't remember telling my friend Kathleen that I didn't want to spend New Year's Eve with my boyfriend, Corey but I must have. Corey and I were about to graduate from college, and I knew it was time for me to figure out if this was a college relationship or if I should be taking him seriously when he talked about marriage. Corey and my relationship was complicated, and our future was complicated by the fact that we both had our hearts broken by some of the same girls. I needed a little distance. Kathleen was a sophomore at the time, cute as hell with her red hair and freckles and the nicest person on the planet. When Kathleen showed up on campus the year before, I decided that I definitely did not like Kathleen. She was smart and talented and nice in that way that makes you suspicious. (laughs) A year later, I loved her, and I still do. So when she said out of the blue, hey, you should come spend New Year's and Christmas and New Year's with me, I said, absolutely. Spending the holidays with Kathleen meant spending them in Abidjan, in the West African country Cote d'Ivoire. Kathleen's parents were teachers who'd spent their careers at international schools. She was a middle-class Canadian-American kid who just happened to have grown up in Africa. This was, of course the turn of the 21st century. This was Y2K. People were stockpiling bottled water and canned beans. Sane people could not be certain that at 12.01 on January 1st, chaos would not ensue. People were worried about grids crashing, and those of us who were not worried spent a lot of time dancing to Prince. (laughs) We were not going to party like it was 1999. We were going to party because it was 1999, and no one knew for sure what would happen next. Why not go to Africa? Kath and I flew to Amsterdam and then on to Abidjan. We drank a lot of Baileys and played cards. On the second leg of the flight, we ran into a couple of classmates of hers from high school, the pretty blonde daughters of missionaries who now attended some Bible college in the States. They were dismayed by our Bailey's drinking and our card playing and by the fact that for a while Kathleen slept in my lap. After we landed in Abidjan, as we were crossing the hot tarmac between the plane and the terminal, one of the missionaries pulled Kathleen aside to ask if she'd become a lesbian. Oh no, Kathleen said, I'm not. 
but she kind of is. <laughs> she grabbed my hand and we smiled and the missionaries looked at us alarmed. There's my dad, Kathleen said, and she squealed with excitement and ran the rest of the way to the terminal. And pretty soon, instead of having to think about whether or not a non-monogamous heterosexual marriage would work for me, I had someone else's mother slicing mango and pineapple for my afternoon snack. On Christmas Eve, Kathleen and I were sunbathing in the backyard when we started hearing the pop, pop, pop of what Kathleen said were firecrackers. It'll go on all day, she said, and all night. New Year's Eve will be crazy with firecrackers. I rolled over on my back and closed my eyes against the sun. The sky was hazy with dust blown in from the Sahara. I listened for a while. Are you sure? I asked. I lived in Rogers Park in the 1990s. It, it kind of sounds like gunfire. No, Kathleen said. It's firecrackers. About five minutes later, Kat's mom was at the sliding glass door saying, Girls, get in here. We gathered our towels and our books and our sun lotion. Come on, her mother said. Kathleen, I said, move it. We scampered for the door. We both blinked in the sudden dimness of the house. Kathleen's father was on the telephone. On whose authority? When? And where's the president now, he asked. As the principal of an international school, he had diplomats for friends. He turned to us. They've bounced the president. It's a coup d'etat, just in time for Christmas. Instead of spending my holiday traveling across West Africa as a tourist, I spent it playing gin rummy in the living room with Kathleen and her family. We watched the military overthrow the government on TV. Robert Guy gave speeches about how the military would return the government to democracy. There was a brief period of a shoot-on-site dusk-to-dawn curfew. We stayed home during that. <laughs> International borders were closed and then open and then ambiguously closed and open. This was back before Skype, before ubiquitous internet chat, before most people carried cell phones. I called my folks to tell them I was safe, but I didn't call my boyfriend. I didn't think a coup d'etat in Cote d'Ivoire was going to make the kind of news he was likely to see. Shortly after Christmas, things seemed to be returning to something like normal in the streets of Abidjan. The curfew was lifted, shops opened, people came out. When, when Kathleen's um, Ivorian friend, Antoinette, called to see if we wanted to go out to dinner with her, we jumped at the chance. Getting out of that split-level ranch that might as well have been on any American cul-de-sac felt fantastic. We hailed a cab and went out for the best Ethiopian food I'd ever had. This coup has been making me crazy, Antoinette said, <laughs> over f yellow lentils and fish stew. My mom won't even let me go out for New Year's. I have to be in by 10. Can you believe it? She's acting like the world is ending. We were too young to know what we were witnessing. And in our defense, the talking heads on the BBC thought everything would be sorted out in six months. Everybody thought it was a little coup. We drank honey wine and pressed our luck, refusing to hail a cab until an equatorial evening was almost upon us, the sky neon, the dusty streets lit up. 
In the cab, Antoinette sat shotgun chatting politics with the driver, while Kath and I watched the storefronts and fruit vendors and tanks parked on street corners scroll past. We'd hardly gone a mile before the driver glanced in the rearview mirror and swore, softly, merd. Bearing down behind us was a Mercedes flashing its lights. Soldiers, boys waving assault rifles, leaned out windows. The taxi driver looked for a minute like he wanted to floor it, but his beat-up Citroën was no match for the Mercedes pulling alongside, and the boys waving rifles looked serious. They forced the cab to the side of the road and approached the car. The soldiers demanded something from our driver that he didn't have. He offered them money, and there was shouting, and a soldier pulled open the driver's door and dragged him out. They want to see his license, Antoinette said. He doesn't have one. He tried to bribe them, but they keep saying, we're the soldiers, we're not the dirty police. We don't want your filthy money. Our driver was getting roughed up. He was thrown against the side of the car, his back pressed to the window next to Kathleen's head, a rifle muzzle pressed to his chest. That that soldier just said, if he makes another wrong move, they're going to pump him full of lead, Antoinette said. Another soldier leaned in the driver's side window and shouted us. Antoinette turned and in the same tone of voice shouted. He said to stay calm. He said, everything's fine. He says, don't be afraid. And we all laughed, absurdly. Even the soldier. Antoinette's eyes welled up. And as bizarrely and inexplicably as the whole incident began, it was over. The driver gave the soldiers all the money he had, and they sped away in their commandeered Mercedes. Girls, our driver said in English, I am okay. You are okay. I take you home. And he did. New Year's Eve, Kathleen and I didn't want to go anywhere. Her parents were going to a party at another principal's house. Her sister had plans, half of them clandestine with her Ivorian boyfriend. Kathleen and I decided to spend the evening swimming in their neighbor's backyard pool. The neighbors were in Paris. We bought champagne we intended to drink from the bottle. It was December 31st, 1999, and we thought it might be the end of everything. The patio around the pool was paved with stones still warm from the sun. Kathleen flipped on the pool lights, and the water glowed, aquamarine. There were a few streetlights scattered on Kathleen's block, but mostly the night was very still and dark. There was no gunfire that night. No firecrackers, either. We popped the corks on two bottles of champagne, placed them poolside, stripped to our bikinis, and dove in. Kathleen held her waterproof watch up sideways so she could read it by the light of the pool. Two and a half hours, she said, to the millennium. The BBC had done a long piece that afternoon about Africa's unpreparedness for Y2K, about the fact that if any grid on the globe were to fail, it would be Africa's. Two hours and 28 minutes, and we'll see if the lights go out. To the future, I said, and we clinked bottles. We were seven hours ahead of Chicago. We'll be the first to know, I said, what happens in the year 2000. What's Corey doing tonight, Kathleen asked. I took a swig of champagne. I don't know. We drank and swam and talked. 
At, at some point, Kathleen peeled off her swimsuit. We should be naked for New Year's, she said. We should be skinny dipping. You are so right, I said, and I wiggled out of mine. We would meet the millennium as naked and wet as the day we were born, but definitely drunker. I remember the air that night smelled of wood smoke and dust. I remember it was warm and windy. I remember sitting on the steps in the shallow end watching the stars. I remember Kathleen floating on her back, her arms and legs spread so she looked like a starfish, her red hair floating around her. Her asking, are you going to marry Corey or what? She was so pretty, all pink and orange against the blue of the water. I don't know, I said. I hope not. If we got married, it would be more out of a fear of the future than out of love. Kathleen stood up. What? She said. I couldn't hear you. My ears were underwater. She kind of sexy dog paddled towards me. I said, I think I'm too gay to marry Corey. I said, that's probably true, Kathleen said. She floated into my lap. I leaned back on my elbows so we could watch the stars. How will we know if it all goes to shit at midnight, she asked. What if all hell breaks loose, but we don't know it? It feels like we're the only breathing people for blocks and blocks. The lights in the pool will go out, I said. We'll be plunged into darkness. What time is it? Kathleen asked. I picked up her wrist and held her watch to the light. 11.30. She looked up at me. Half an hour. Yeah, I said. She put a hand on the back of my neck. Happy old year, she said. Happy New Year. And then she kissed me. This wasn't a friend's kiss, that soft, quick press of lips. She turned in my lap and put her hands in my wet hair. Now, I don't think it is always a good idea to go around making out with your friends. (laughs) But if you ever find yourself swimming naked in a backyard pool in a country tipping into civil war at the very edge of a millennium, my suggestion is to err on the side of making out. (laughs) Because sometimes a kiss at midnight is about romance, but sometimes a kiss at midnight is about any number of other kinds of love. We were two girls with 30 minutes left. I wrapped my arms around my friend and I kissed her back. The night was quiet. Water lapped. We kissed. And we laughed. And we kissed. Normally, this is where I would credit the artists who helped put this story together. Unfortunately, this story was produced almost a decade ago, and despite our best efforts, we were not able to locate that information. Thank you for your understanding. 
Second story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, our Rothstein and Gina Wamak, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is, is the Second, Second Story Podcast.